Welcome to Design is Human, a podcast from the Atlanta Design Festival that presents the stories behind the humans that design for humankind. I'm your host, Elaine DeLeo, co-founder of the Atlanta Design Festival. Catherine Clark is the president of the Royal Institute of British Architects, USA, and former chair of the New York chapter of the REBA USA. Catherine has lived and worked as an architect in New York for over 15 years and is the director of BARC Studio. Her work has been featured in REBA Journal, Building Design, as well as the books Design Brooklyn, an overview of the best architectural and design projects across the borough, and The Culture of Practice, which is a snapshot of architectural practice culture from around the world. Bark Studios' design for a Brooklyn restaurant was distilled into an icon for the critics' review in the New Yorker magazine. Catherine's experience ranges from master planning in Hampshire, United Kingdom, to leading the design of New York's first green school. Catherine studied at the Bartlett School of Architecture, UCL, and is an examiner for the REBA Part 3 exams. Hello, Catherine. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Elaine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us on Design is Human podcast. I'd like to get started as we do with most of our interviews and talk a little bit about your background and what influences brought you to your career of architecture. Okay, well, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about all of this stuff. It's great. Um, so I loved learning about people and places uh, when I was a kid. And architecture is the perfect opportunity to blend an interest in both those things. Um, it did help as well that my dad and my big brother of architects and my mother taught history of architecture for many years. So you could say I had a heightened awareness of the built environment from an early age. So, yeah, I studied in London at the Bartlett School of Architecture. And um, I did my years out in professional practice, which is a required step in the British system in New York City, having done some internships in between my years of study. And I absolutely loved it. We only had to do one year. I'd, I did two years uh, because it was just so exciting for me to be in, in the city. And I worked in an all-women firm and it was great fun. Hard work, but great fun. <laughs> so I came back for my master's and my diploma in licensing to London and I ended up marrying a New Yorker, so I moved back to New York. <laughs> mm. And while I was back in New York, I decided to try and keep working in the field that I'd been working on in London, which was more socially conscious stuff. So low-income housing, social housing, as it's called here, and schools and nurseries, kindergartens, universities, and so on. So in New York, once I was licensed, I was very lucky to get a job working on New York's first green school, which had all the bells and whistles, photovoltaics and, you know, monitors in the entrance hall where you could read what was being generated at any given point in time. Um, I really hoped since it was in Battery Park City um, and on the edge of Manhattan that I would be able to install wind turbines. But the studies showed actually that the skyscrapers in Manhattan caused weird eddies that made harnessing wind power very difficult, despite the fact that wind really does whistle down the New York Harbour. But it was, you know, it was, a, it was a great learning curve and it was a challenge because the massing for the project had been designed in the 80s when Battery Park City was created. So it was a very real wedding cake affair with you know symmetrical setbacks and so on but it was a great experience and then when my first child was born I set up my own all-women firm 
and I've been there ever since. And um, we've been published in Design Brooklyn, which was a kind of roundup of the cool projects that were happening in Brooklyn a few years back. And uh, another really interesting book called The Culture of Practice, which bespoke um, careers who are a leading architecture and recruitment firm all over the world at this point. They put this together, which was a really cool roundup of practices in New York, London, LA, Hong Kong, Australia. So my little practice, which at this point is just um, it's just me and then whoever else I'm partnering with on the project, I was in a book alongside the big guys, you know, Grimshaw mm. and, and Zaha, one of, you know, my uh, heroes or heroines, should I say. <laughs> so Zaha, is, is it Zaha Hadid? Is that what you're... Well, yeah, I mean, as a kid yeah. and as a young student, we didn't, you know, as a student, as a, you know, we didn't have so many role models uh, growing up of women in architecture, let alone women of colour in architecture. And Zaha was a fiercely proud Iranian and an incredible intellect and her designs and her student work was hugely influential to me as a as a student architect and just it was just very mm-hmm. good to see that there was a so female was, out there doing what I wanted to do right so was the firm that you started in the UK or in New York no that was in New York and in UK between my when I was doing just after my diploma in architecture in my licensing, I worked in another all-female office um, with a really wonderful lead, Anne Thorne and her partners. And that was a really exciting experience because um, I could see just how much influence architects can have in helping shape the lives of those who don't necessarily have you know, aren't looking to renovate their brand new apartment and brownstone with millions of dollars, but who are living in social housing. And we used to do all kinds of amazing consultations with the entire community to find out what it was exactly they needed to try and make their lives better. So one thing that always struck me was, for example, in those consultations was that teenage boys, for example, rarely have somewhere to go and be safe and, you know, just be teenage boys, basically. In fact, they get kind of penalized and sort of uh, vilified for for just doing what they need to do as as young, developing human beings. So trying to find a safe space for them that that kind of appealed to them and worked for the rest of the community too. Because, you know, playgrounds aren't, they don't really fit that bill, you know. So, yeah, I've worked in some really interesting all-female firms. So um, I feel very privileged in that respect. Right. What was one of your most influential projects you feel that you were able to accomplish with your firm? Well, I suppose with my firm, you know, the the sort of knock-on effect from one of the projects was that the New Yorker reviewed one of the the restaurants that we designed in Mm. Brooklyn. Um, It was the first Italian restaurant for a restaurant in Rome called Antica Pesa. And the New Yorker did a review of the restaurant and it, it said that the design was good, which was awesome. But then they made a little icon out of the design, which was really, really flattering. And that's the desktop uh, image. Yeah. Um, so that was really cool. And I was very proud of that. And in terms of all the projects, I mean, I think when I was working in London, I designed a little nursery school in Brixton and, um, you know, and Thorn Architects. And I basically had a really wonderful time working with the kids who were at the school and I, I said it was designed around a tulip tree in the playground. So I said to the kids, okay, what I want you to do is do a drawing of this tulip tree because I want to incorporate it into the building somehow. 
And um, so they, it was very funny. They all went right up to the trunk and were drawing like the texture of the trunk. And I said, well, that's really interesting. But guys, if we step back a few steps and we look up, check out, you know, let's have a look at, let's see if we can do something different. And they all stood back and they said, wow, this tree is enormous. It's almost as if they'd never even seen it before, you know? Wow. And they did these beautiful drawings and I ended up incorporating them into fencing panels that separated their sort of protected bit of playground because they were quite little from the older kids in the school. And it was just, you know, it's a very simple minor thing, but that's also a really important point to, to remember that you can change people's perspectives, you know, with the power of design and architecture. And I, I want to do more of that. Yeah, agreed. So through your career, now you've come to becoming the president of REBA, of US, REBA, mm-hmm. US REBA. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what REBA is for our audience, the importance of it, and what are, what is your agenda for REBA US? So, yeah, it's a real honor. I mean, when I was a student, I used to help catalog the drawings collection in London. And I was I worked in the AV department of the, of the lecture series in Portland Place and the RABA. So I've always been associated with the RABA. The RABA is the Royal Institute of British Architects, and it's a membership organization based in the UK. But it also regulates education and professional practice. So that's quite different to the AIA in that respect. So, for example, schools of architecture have to be accredited by the RIBA in order to be able to give the qualifications of an architectural degree or diploma or license. We have about 400 members in the US, and I would say that our core values are that we really believe that the practice of architecture is a professional endeavor that directly impacts the lives and well-being of millions. And at this time particularly, we really need more than ever to act as agents for the creation of healthy, safe environments. So, you know, to that point, you know, it starts on a big scale. Uh, We really need to take an active stand on climate change. You know, um, the UN have published guidelines that buildings and their construction together account for 36% of global energy use and 39% of energy-related carbon dioxide emissions annually. And that's a huge, staggering number that we really need to take ownership of and, and change because it can't go on like this. You know, we're, other industries are looking to change and we need to change too. And it also then extends down to where we are in terms of this global health pandemic and there's unfortunately a direct correlation to the quality of people's housing and the ability to withstand getting this virus. Um, and and there are, there's empirical data that proves that it's, it's, it's not working for a lot of people the way they're living, um, the way they've been forced to live. And we need to take a stance on that and we need to try and change it because, you know, this won't be the last pandemic and um, we need to be responsible in the way that we shape and govern the built environment to make it better for everyone. Right. So um, let's go back to uh, your goals for the U.S. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what your agenda is there? Yes. So as president of the RIBA USA, I really want to evolve us into a more dynamic entity where people across all fields check in to see what's going on in the built environment. So not just architects and designers, but you know, the policymakers, financial people, uh, people who are sort of perhaps um, communities where they think, where people are sort of thinking about setting up 
a community centre or mm. are wanting to um, improve their environment. I want people to feel empowered and emboldened to be very demanding about what it is that happens in the places that they live and work and that they should be better. And I want to provide a useful platform to help broadcast the ideas and voices from across our entire communities, across all races and genders. And as I was just mentioning, I want to galvanise people to commit to eliminating building irresponsibly and to help shift the current landscape to one where public health takes a key role. So, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is I really hope to help ultimately to make a difference to people's lives, um, even just to make them a little bit safer, healthier and better. If we can do that, then we'll have done our job. Yeah. Do you feel there's a difference between the building industry in the UK and here in the United States and how that might affect your work? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a really, it's a very fine balance, you know, coming from one country to another and bringing that experience with you, you know, you have to be obviously extremely respectful, but um, the regulations in the UK, the government regulations for building quality are very different to those in the US. So for example, here in the UK, we have very strict regulations around the sustainable aspects of a building and the long life sort of aspects of it. So for example, windows and doors, the building fabric needs to perform at a very, very high level, more in line with the European regulations. And in the US, it's happening, obviously on a sort of federal system. So it's which is, you know, it's much more complicated because every state is so different in terms of its climate and what's expected. So it's obviously much harder to kind of draw parallels in that respect. But there are some, you know, being so so close to Europe, we do have that in the UK, there are definitely, um, I would say, there's more awareness of how to build across all the construction industry. There's more of awareness of how to build in a more sort of sustainable way um, and it's also enforced by the local planning authorities. So um, in that respect, you know, it would be amazing to ultimately try and influence government policy in the US to also be much more demanding of the performance of the materiality of, of new buildings. So, you know, because at the moment they're under, you know, buildings developments are underwritten by financial services, you know, departments that don't necessarily have the long-term vision that perhaps architects do in terms of, you know, building glass skyscrapers are, is not really, to my mind, at this point, a kind of the way forward, you know, because in, um, in all, all different climates, it's, it's wrong for all kinds of reasons um, in terms of, you know, the, the heating, the cooling that's necessary and so on. So, yeah, ultimately to be able to help guide in a really productive and sensible way and I don't believe that it's to do with you know having bells and whistles actually I really don't I think it's a much more simple approach that's required which is just making the envelope of a building perform better and once you start kind of having that kind of approach then it actually automatically will make people's lives better because there'll be less pollutants um, and less need for air conditioning and, and heating that is really extreme and very not very nice for the for the skin quite frankly um and you know especially now with covid with air conditioning we have to be very careful i mean it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare how do you air condition the entire multi-story buildings with one system when this is an airborne disease you know so it's these are necessary steps i believe yeah 
Agreed. And as you know, and we've discussed is that we at MA are, you know, we have engaged in a commission study with Ortis Research on the economic impact of design here in Atlanta. But a big part of that is bringing forth case studies and use cases where design has not only improved the building that's being com- completed, but also there's an economic value and, and uh, impact to good design. And we're trying to get that information shared with our planning and uh, building commission here in, in Atlanta. And I think other cities are, are looking at these things more as well. But my question is, you know, here in the U.S., a lot of developers pretty much drive the decisions around building design and sustainability and, um, and things you mentioned earlier, you know, air quality. Those things are not always at the top of the list. A lot of them want to build something quickly and, you know, start renting it out and, and get out quickly and then start the next. What do you think are ways that you can influence architects here or even get involved in these planning commissions to help with these types of issues? Well, I think the evidence is in the market value of building typologies. And, you know, it's it seems so clear to me that, that the buildings that were built in previous generations where a lot of money was put into beautiful detailing of brick in old school buildings or old museums or old warehouses even that have been now converted into lofts or loft apartments or, you know, office buildings, there's, there's an appreciation the value added by the quality of the design at that time to current resale values is is tremendous. And, you know, you kind of look at some of the stuff that's being built now and you think in 10 years time, this building, you know, this cheap building is probably not even going to be functioning very well, let alone in a hundred years time, it will probably have to be knocked down because it will be completely obsolete and we won't want, be, we won't want to be living in tiny little you know, boxes, basically. I just think we need to kind of close the loop on the thinking, if you see what I mean, because I think that's what's missing. We haven't really kind of tied those two things together, the value of um, added by really good quality design against actually how much things are worth in the kind of market economy. And I think that your study is totally amazing and that, you know, it really highlights just how much that means, you know, 35 35- $8 billion added to the Atlanta design economy by design, you know, uh, entities in 2018. And that's, that's tremendously powerful. That's a number you can't ignore. And, you know, I think that that's really powerful in terms of persuading policymakers, I hope, um, to really take design more seriously, because not only for the issues I've mentioned earlier in terms of our health, but also just for the longevity of um, our built environments. We can't afford to build buildings that are, you know, aren't going to last. Um, it's it's bad for the environment. It's bad for us. We need to be rethinking what we add to our built environment um, and make it worthwhile. And there's a phrase that was used, was used in the UK when I was a student studying a master's in sustainability called long life. Mm-hmm loose fit and that's Mm. a really really sensible approach which is you know build your building so that it's really high quality um so that it can have a long life it doesn't need to be knocked down in 20 years because the materials are degrading or whatever so use really good quality materials and loose fit means 
don't just make it kind of specific for what it for what the function is right now make it adaptable for future reuse in different kind of ways and that's really interesting because you know if you think about you know as i was saying about loft buildings you know uh, old warehouses they're infinitely adaptable to any they could be a school they could be a house you know it could be apartments it could be an office space because they've just basically created or they created 100 years ago or 200 years ago really beautiful large spaces with big windows that are openable so that you can get mm-hmm. fresh air um, and just generosity, you know, bricks and beams and wood, good quality stuff. Yeah. I think uh, the ability to open a window now is more important than ever. <laughs> Blows my mind when I see yeah. buildings without windows. I just don't understand because me personally, I'd much rather open a window than have AC on, Agreed. you know, it's yes, crazy. And I think hopefully we'll see that happening um, more and more now, especially with a pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about how someone becomes a member of Reba and what is Reba doing to attract younger members? Yeah, great. Well, basically now the RBA is welcoming members from across the world uh, through affiliate membership, chartered practice, um, fellowships, but also to student members and for younger members, the attraction would be that they're offering mentorship, um, and maybe that's something we're going to be doing too, with uh, more experienced architects to help kind of guide them through the processes and also really just to act as a sort of network to really bring um, younger architects into the fold. Um, networking is quite a key part of being an architect. So I've just been doing um, the part three licensing exams, which is so in, in the RABA system, part one is the degree, part two is the diploma in architecture or the master's, and part three is the professional licensing exams. And I helped establish the part three exams in New York City about three years ago now. And um, and it's, it's always amazing to be an external examiner because you get the privilege of reading people's submissions um, from all over the States, all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, it's a lot of airport designers who are coming up for their part three. And it's it's just a really good way to kind of get a snapshot of what's going on in the world. But also it's wonderful to meet people who are kind of coming into their licensing phase of their career. And any way that you can help kind of promote their work or, or help them network, I really like to do that. And I really hope to do more of that. There's the mentorships, and I think that that's really helpful to kind of bringing people into our kind of conversation. And I think it works both ways, by the way. I think it's really important that we hear what they have to say about the way they are seeing the way we are right now in the world, especially with, you know, the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, we really need to kind of recalibrate where we stand as an entity. And we can only do that by having conversations with different people different age groups across different all areas of the community. Um, and then I think one way that's been really positive, the RABA has been really positive recently, is they've um, finally given the RABA gold medal to Sir David Ajay, who's uh, the first person of colour to receive that very, very important award. And, you know, I think that is such, again, it's, a, you know, like I was saying about Zaha, it, it's really important that we see people being celebrated who look like them, you know, and yeah. I think that Sir David's work in America has been transformative all across the States, actually, from 
Denver to New York to Sugar Hill, Harlem, but most importantly, obviously, the American, uh, the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture on the Mall in Washington, which is already just in its very building fabric, takes on that kind of white classical stone buildings that are around it and just is saying, this is something different, you know, let's celebrate the differences. And it's a really, you know, it's obviously a huge subject matter and it's wonderful that the spotlight's finally being shone on that subject matter but alongside it it's obviously difficult conversations to be had and I think it's amazing what that building embodies in terms of these kind of nuanced conversations so that to me is a really huge step forward for the RIBA I'm really pleased that they they see that that Sir David's work is is absolutely the gold standard right now and you know I think that that should be hopefully encouraging to young people to sort of think, you know, I could do that too. I have something to say too. And I, I want to, you know, make a difference. And ultimately that's the thing about architecture is such a positive field to be in because, you know, you're really, you're trying to represent the aims and ambitions of, of people and make their lives better. Um, and that's why it's such a thrilling career to choose. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think here in the U.S., I think we've seen a lot of drop off in younger students and and those coming into their careers in these these types of um, industry membership organizations. I know I used to work with ASID, the American Society of Interior Designers, and it was difficult to attract the younger generation to understand the value of membership and um, the opportunities. And I think with COVID now, you know, those networking events and a lot of the programming that did attract the younger students is now on hold. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves with uh, the current situation in the world. I would offer to say, can we be your platform? Like, how can we help you? Um, it, we we can only be relevant by including people, um, everybody's voice, and, you know, perhaps giving voice to people who feel like they haven't had one before would be a tremendous honor and would really, you know, it would really help us help move the conversation on. And that, that's the most important thing. Um, and actually, I think in a way, there are, there are some positives about the pandemic in some respects, meaning, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, of course, but we're all kind of stuck now in our little bubbles, but you know, perhaps that should embolden people to take the opportunity to just do it, reach out to people and just say, you know, hey, I've got this idea. How can I do it? Or, you know, how can you help me achieve this? Um, you know, even myself, I just did this. I reached out to the British Consulate General in New York and I said, you know, how can you help? How can we work together to make a better platform of the RIBA USA? And and we're working together now on, on um, reciprocity. We're having a roundtable in a month's time um, about um, getting licensing between the US and the UK um, back um, on a par because we had it before, but it kind of went away. Um, which would enable American architects to work in the UK and UK architects to work in America, which would obviously be tremendously helpful. Um, And also, you know, we're working together about how to bring more British building products to the US um, because obviously, you know, it's a really wonderful market and um, there's some really interesting, innovative British products that are being made for our industry. So, you know, I think whilst there is definitely computer Zoom teams burnout, um, yeah. I do think that people should just 
So throw caution to the wind and just try something. If you have a dream, if you have an idea, just try. Now is a really good time to try something, um, try something new, try and push the envelope. You know, the markets, the, the working environment is ready for people to say, you know, guys, we need to consider this. It hasn't been considered properly and it's negatively impacting my life. Like, let's look at this. Um, or I can see that it's negatively impacting my neighbor's life. Let's let's try and use this opportunity for fixing things, you know, in a great American way of being positive about something negative. Yes, agreed. How do you think you will engage with the members in, that are here already in the U.S.? And are you going to ask them to also do outreach to uh, recruit new members? And or what's your membership planning? Uh, very good question. Um, well, at the moment, we're looking to get new chapter chairs for a, a few different cities across the US, including New York City, um, because I, I cannot be the chair uh, and the president. That's a bit greedy. Um, plus, we need new blood, you know, uh, we need a new voice there. Uh, San Francisco um, is the other place and possibly Chicago and possibly in talks with someone who's hoping to take on the Pacific Northwest. And then once we get the new chairs in place, just trying to kind of, yeah, I guess take on a similar kind of, well, they should bring their own voice to that position. And, you know, they should then think about how they can reach out to the people in their community. And I, I think that it's a really, obviously, it's a very difficult time right now for a lot of architects because the work is is drying up, you know, and that's really, really tough. So, you know, some industries are doing okay, um, but others are not. Um, so how can we help? You know, what, what would be a useful way of using the platform that we have to help our members um, and not just our members, but all architects and designers? What, what would be useful and seeing where that takes us? Yeah. How do you feel um, about the connection between REBA and AIA here in the United States? Um, it's something that I think that we need to bring the two back together because I think that maybe for a while we haven't been working, you know, in symbiotically with the AIA. Um, but actually I've just heard from an RIBA member in New York uh, who's been given an AIA award. And, uh, you know, I think he was saying it's a perfect opportunity to try and bring them together. Brilliant. I, I love that. You know, that, yeah. I think given the circumstances we find ourselves in with the global health pandemic and with the building environment, you know, slowing down the workflow, um, I think now is the perfect opportunity to bring together the AIA and the ROBA again. And actually, one of the projects I'm working on with the ROBA in London is a virtual exhibition with Google Arts and Culture, their platform. And it's it's quite interesting, actually, the idea that we came up with my partner up in New England, who's the council member for the ROBA in London, Catherine Davis, was to work with some photos that were taken in 1856 of Central Park when it was just freshly finished. And they're amazing because there's, you know, farmland in the background and farmhouses and then the trees in the foreground are only about three foot high. Um, an architect from New York had these photographs, these very first photographs of Central Park, and he was going over to the UK to visit architects that he, you know, worked with and admired there. And he took these photographs really as a sort of gesture of goodwill and to say, look what's going on in New York. We're building a park for the people who who need fresh air because at the time, obviously Central Park, it was, it was well, I mean, it's 
there are some issues around displaced um, African-Americans that were living there, which are not to be overlooked. Um, it was not the grid of Manhattan had not extended as far at that point. But Olmsted and Vaux, who created it, could see that if it carried on unchecked, then the whole of Manhattan would end up covered in the grid without any break. So the vision was to create a green lung for this, for Manhattan. And this chap Donaldson brought these photos over and gave them to the person who then went on to found the RIBA. So you've got these two sort of architects who are on either side of the Atlantic who wanted to kind of exchange ideas about how to make their cities better. Um, and it's the first, they're the first items in the RIBA drawings collection. So it, it was a very, very, you know, in my mind, it's a very magnanimous uh, gesture. And, you know, I want to kind of get back to that moment in time where we're saying, guys, look what's working here. This is a really good thing that we're creating for our community. How could we help you implement it in your community and vice versa? And I think that that's um, essentially where we can reunite the AIA and the RIBA mm. in this shared vision for a healthier environment for people. Yeah. I think REBA does a really good job of promoting the work of its members to the outward, to the public, mm-hmm. um, you know, announcing David Ajay winning the medal. And you, you see a lot of that across the press and the media. I don't see that as much with AIA. To me, I see a lot of its, a lot of their program is very focused on their members. And even when, with that, when I was with ASID, I always felt that, you know, we really should encourage more, more activity that brings the public in. So they understand the value of what designers do and, you know, kind of like what you're talking about with the Olmsted exhibition. Are those things you would like to do more if you were to work with AIA or even Absolutely. just Reba on its own in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, actually, while I was saying that about those photographs, I just suddenly realized, you know, it would be great to do like a panel discussion with the AIA New York um, Mm. and the RIBA New York, just to have a chat, you know, and see where we're all at, you know, and um, definitely we we should be looking to, to work together to speak to the public. I mean, I guess that's really my point of view as well, is like, if we can communicate to the public just how good our environment could be and should be, then I think it will give the public more of a voice to be able to demand that. And I think that if we can help the AIA also do that, then that would be an amazing thing. Because I feel like we've come so far away from where we started as designers of the built environment. You know, um, we had such great vision, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, you know, in terms of our healthcare systems and our you know, our ambitions for our society um, in terms of educational buildings and museums and so on. And, you know, helping to raise the kind of bar of where we are as a civilization. I think it's really an appropriate moment to sort of revisit those lofty ambitions and aims, but also recognizing that even the basic things aren't necessarily working that well either. We, I think with all these things, it's got to be a bit of top down and bottom up, you know, um, yeah. in terms of the vision and the reality of how you can affect change. Right. I think with COVID, I truly believe that we're going to almost go through another renaissance of ideas. I just feel like, you know, once we get out of this and hopefully with our elections coming up in November and 
we're all praying that the country will move in a better direction, that people will be just more open to new ideas and understanding the responsibility they carry and why designers are good at, at understanding sustainability and you know all these things that we know that you and I are talking about, but the public really needs to understand better. And I do believe that where we are right now is educating them in, a, in very, in your, you know, it's right there right now for them to understand and see. Absolutely. And I think that's the, the, what's so wonderful about what you and Ma and the Atlanta Design Festival are doing, because this isn't just in an echo chamber. This is a public platform. Um, and your vision is so fantastic to, you know, to kind of raise people's awareness of the value of architecture and good design across the board, economically, but also, you know, on a human scale. And, you know, I think that maybe what you're doing for Atlanta should be really a kind of model that we can help kind of roll out across the US, across the world, because we really need to um, take stock of the situation that we are in right now and, and change, as you say. So, and I think that, you know, I think it is an amazing moment for change. And I think that pandemics tend to have really huge effects on the way history moves. You know, we saw that at the beginning of the previous century with the Spanish flu. Um, So yeah, I I think we've got some positive goals to aim towards. Yeah. And I think you're coming to the US at a good time. And uh, we Mm -hmm. look forward for having you participate in the festival next year. And, and I believe that there's just a lot of opportunity for Reba to make headway here. So we're excited about uh, what's to come. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us today. And before I let you go, uh, we always ask one final question, and that is, why do you believe design is human? Such an interesting question. I think in a way, I've sort of already started to touch on my response to this. Basically, you know, when we look back as a species, at where we've come from, design is intrinsically human. Humanity is nothing without design. You know, we started off living very, very, very simply in caves. We've kind of evolved over the years. We've we've created industry to help us create the fabric, um, the, the elements of the fabric of our built environment through mechanization. And, you know, when you look around you at the spaces that inspire you, obviously nature is very, very inspirational, but also it's buildings, um, really ambitious buildings that can, that, that can really change and transcend your understanding of what's possible. And somebody asked me the other day, what's your favorite building? Which is like asking a musician, what's your favorite song? It's really hard to answer. For me, it's always buildings that are something way beyond the domestic scale, something where you really, your spirit can soar and you can really just truly begin to believe that anything is possible. And for me, you know, usually it's, it's museum buildings that, you know, where you have a beautiful big um, foyer or exhibition space. Um, and actually, I'm not religious at all, but some religious buildings also can have evoke the same kind of responses because they, are, in fact, were designed to be um, spiritual. But I think there's a kind of interesting cross-pollination of, of those two elements. And actually, I think that the most we can hope to achieve as in the career of architecture or as human beings is to create very, very inspiring spaces. And I hope that we can help to build some in the future in the United States. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Elaine. Have a great day. You too. 
The Design is Human podcast is brought to you by Ma and the Atlanta Design Festival. Our producer is Matt Owen. Special thanks to Gene Kansas and the Constellations community and the new Indie Studios. We wish you a safe and healthy holiday and new year. And please do your part. Wear a mask. We're all in this together. Until next time. Mm-hmm.